Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Mildred Keith, Episode 4 One sweet June morning, an expectant group gathered in the shade of the vine-wreathed porch of Miss Stanhope's pretty cottage. It consisted of that good lady herself, Mr. and Mrs. Keith, and their eight children, all attired in neat traveling costumes, and awaiting the coming of the stage coach, which was to carry them the first step of their journey to the nearest town situated on the Ohio and Erie Canal. Mr. and Mrs. Park, the new occupants of the cottage, were there too, and a few old neighbors and friends who had run in for a last goodbye. Mrs. Keith and Mildred turned now, and then a tearful, lingering look upon their deserted home, and this other, which was equally familiar, almost equally dear. Miss Stanhope seemed to have some ado to control her feelings of sadness and anxiety for the future. But Mr. Keith was in fine spirits in which the children evidently shared very largely. Eager to be off, they moved restlessly about, asking again and again, When will the stage come? and kept sending out reconnoitering parties to see if there were any signs of its approach. At length they espied it and announced the fact with joyful exclamations as its four prancing steeds came sweeping around the corner and swaying and rolling it dashed up to the gate. The driver drew rein, the guard sprang from his lofty perch, threw open the door and let down the steps. They were, there were hurried embraces and farewells, a hasty stowing away of bags, bundles, and passengers large and small in the inside and of more bulky baggage in the boot of the coach. The steps were replaced, the door slammed to, and amid waving of handkerchiefs and a chorus of goodbyes and good wishes, the toot toot of the guard's horn, the crack of the coachman's whip, they swept away down the street, looking in all probability their last upon many a well-known object, many a friendly face, nodding and smiling to them from door or window. Frank Osborne, at work in his mother's garden, dropped his hoe to lift his hat and bow as the stage passed and to gaze after it with a longing, lingering look. Spencer Hall, standing, cigar in mouth, on the steps of his father's mansion, did likewise. But Mildred had turned her head away purposely and did not see him. Never before had Lansdale put on so inviting an appearance, or the surrounding country looked so lovely as today, while they rode onward through the valley and over the hills, now clothed in all the rich verdure of early summer, and basking in the brilliant sunlight, occasionally mellowed and subdued by the flitting shadow of some soft, white, fleecy-like cloud floating in the deep azure of the sky. A few hours' drive took our travelers to the town where they were to exchange the stage for the canal boat, the packet Pauline. 
She lay at the wharf, and having dined comfortably at a hotel nearby, they went on board, taking with them the luggage brought by the stage. Their household goods had been dispatched on the same route some days before. Here they were in quarters only less confined than those of the stage, the Pauline's cabin being so narrow that when the table was to be set for a meal, most of the passengers had to go on deck to be out of the way. All along the side of the cabin ran a cushioned seat used for that purpose in the daytime and as a lower berth at night, other shelf-like berths being then set up over it, all so narrow that the occupant could scarcely turn upon his couch, and the upper one so close to the ceiling that it required some care to avoid striking the head against it in getting in or out. Also there was an unpleasant dampness about the bedding. In the cool of the evening, or when the sun was clouded, the deck was the favorite place of resort, but there a constant lookout for bridges must be kept, and to escape them it was sometimes necessary to throw oneself flat upon the deck, not the most pleasant of alternatives. The progress of these packets was so slow, too, that it took nearly a week to reach Cleveland, from the point where our friends embarked. But this mode of travel had its compensations. One was the almost absolute safety, another the ease with which the voyager could step ashore when the boat was in a lock and refresh himself with a brisk walk along the towpath, boarding her again when the next lock was reached. This was done daily by some of the Keith family, even the very little ones being sometimes allowed the treat when the weather and walking were fine and the distance was not too great. Passengers were constantly getting off and on at the locks and the towns along the route, and often the boat was crowded. It was so the, the first night that our friends spent on board, babies cried, older children fretted, and some grown people indulged in, a, in loud complaints of scant and uncomfortable accommodations. Altogether, the cabin was a scene of confusion, and the young Keese felt very forlorn. But mother, aunt, and older sister were very patient, soothed, comforted, and at length succeeded in getting them all to sleep. Then Aunt Wealthy, saying that she felt disposed to lie down and rest beside the children, persuaded Mrs. Keith and Mildred to go up on deck for an hour to enjoy the moonlight and the pleasant evening breeze with Mr. Keith and Rupert, who had been there ever since supper. Mr. Keith helped his wife and daughter up the short flight of steps that led from the stern to the deck, and found them seats on some of their own trunks. There were a number of other passengers sitting about, or pacing to and fro, among the former a burly German, who sat flat on the deck at the stern end of the boat, his long legs dangling over the edge, his elbow on his knee, and his bearded chin in his hand, gazing out idly over the moonlight landscape, while wreaths of smoke from a pipe in his mouth curled slowly up from his lips. The Pauline glided onward with easy, pleasant motion. All had grown quiet in the cabin below, and the song of the bullfrogs, the dull thud of the horses' hooves, and the gentle rush of the water against the sides of the boat were the only sounds that broke the stillness. "'How nice it is here!' exclaimed Mildred. "'The breeze is so refreshing, the mu moonlight so 
Yes, the country is looking beautiful, said her mother, and one gets a good view of it here, but I feel somewhat apprehensive in regard to the bridges. We must be on the watch for them and dodge in time. We will, said her husband, though we may pretty safely trust to the steersman. It is his duty to be on the lookout and give timely warning. Well, we're facing in the right direction to see them, remarked Rupert, but that Dutchman back there is not. I suppose he's safe enough, though, with the man at the helm to sing out as we near them. With that, they fell into talk on other topics and thought no more of the smoker. Bridge, sang out the steersman, and down went every head except that of the German, who sat and smoked on, unmoved. Bridge! The cry was repeated in louder, more emphatic tones. Ya, bridge! Bridge! responded the German, straightening up a little, nodding his head assentingly, but not looking round. Bridge! sang out the steersman for the third time. Bridge, you dodge or! But the boat was already sweeping under, and the bridge, taking the German across his shoulders, threw him with sudden violence to the platform below, whence he rode over into the canal, uttering a half-stifling cry for help as the water closed over him. But he rose again instantly, panting and spluttering, and striking out vigorously for the boat. He presently succeeded in laying hold of the edge of the platform, and the steersman, lending him a helping hand, clambered on board, crestfallen and dripping, while the crowd on deck, seeing him safe and dodged, in a hearty laugh at his expense. I lost mean bop, he said ruefully, shrugging his shoulders and shaking the water from his clothes. Well, you got a free bath in exchange, and may be thankful you didn't lose your life, remarked the steersman with a grin. Next time I call out bridge, I guess you'll duck your head like the rest. The, the rain had been falling heavily all night, but the sun shone brightly and the clouds were flying before a high wind that blew fresh and cool from Lake Erie as the Pauline glided quietly into Cleveland. What a beautiful city, exclaimed the young Keiths as they stepped ashore. Do let us walk to the hotel, father, if it is not too far. Just as Aunt Wealthy and your mother say, he replied, taking the baby from his wife, I am told it is but a short distance, Marcia. I will have our heavy baggage carried directly to the steamer, which leaves this afternoon, and Rupert and the girls can take charge of the satchels and small packages. The ladies decided in favor of the walk as affording agreeable exercise and enabling them to see the city to better advantage it than if cooped up in hammock or omnibus. And no one regretted their choice. They found the wide streets so clean, the breeze so refreshing and exhilarating, and enjoyed so very much gazing upon the tall, elegant-looking houses things displayed in the windows of the large, handsome stores. After a good dinner at the hotel, Mr. Keith, his wife, and older children went out for another stroll about the city. Miss Stanhope, who insisted that she had had exercise enough and preferred to stay where she was, taking charge of the little ones in their absence. On the return of the pedestrians, the whole party went on board the steamer which was to convey them across the lake to Detroit. It was a fine boat, the cabin large and handsome. 
state rooms on each side furnished with berths a far more comfortable size than those of the canal packets the table here was better too both in its appointments and the quality of the food and was set in a lower saloon reached from the upper one by a flight of broad winding stairs the children were delighted with the change and wanted to be on the guards all afternoon watching the play of the great stern wheel and marrying the rainbows in the clouds of spray it sent up looking out over the wide waste of waters at the islands and an occasional passing boat or racing back and forth mildred and rupert were given charge of the three little ones and found great vigilance necessary to prevent cyril and don from putting themselves in peril of their lives Mildred was more than once sorely tempted to shake the young ones, who gave her no peace, but remembering and acting upon her mother's advice, was able to restrain herself and treat them with uniform gentleness. She felt rewarded when, as she was putting them to bed, her mother being busy with the babe, Don threw his arms impulsively round her neck, and kissing her again and again said, I loves you, Millie. You so do to us, naughty chillins? That she is, assented Cyril heartily, and I wish I didn't be so bad. Well, try again tomorrow to be ever so good, Mildred answered, tucking them in and leaving them with a good night kiss. She helped her sisters with their preparations for the night, then was rewarded with a delight spent with the older members of the family in the open air, looking out upon the beautiful wide expanse of waters, now starlit and anon illumined by the silvery rays of the moon as she rose apparently from the distant eastern edge of the lake and slowly ascended the azure vault of the heavens now shining resplendently, and again veiling her fair face for a moment with a thin floating cloud. The next morning the steamer lay at anchor in Detroit Harbor, and our friends left her for a hotel on what was then the principal street of the city. Here, too, they walked out to view the land, and passing the stores and public buildings, found well-shaded streets and handsome residences with pretty dooryards in front. Mr. Keith gave his children their choice of passing around the lakes in a steamer or in the sloop, and followed in the wake of the bears. There was less of show here than on the steamer they had left, but comfort and convenience had not been overlooked, and though Mildred's face clouded a little, it brightened again in a moment as she noted the cheerful content in those of her mother and aunt. They hurried on deck again, where Rupert had been left in charge of the younger children to watch the vessel getting under way. They were lying close to a steamer on whose other side was a second sloop, in quite as close proximity. All seemed hurry and bustle on board the three. I don't see how we are to start, observed Mildred, glancing up at the sails, which hung almost motionless on the masts, for there's scarcely a breath of wind. Don't you see that they're lashing up, and the Milwaukee yonder fast to the steamboat, one on each side, said Rupert. She's to tow both till the wind gets up. Oh, is that the way? She'll have hard work to do it, I should think. She won't growl anyway. No, I suppose not. Which is the cap? Dunru? That nice, jolly-looking chap over yonder. 
That's giving orders in such a loud, preparatory tone. It's Captain Wells, master of the ship. That blue-eyed, brown-haired, rosy-cheeked, stripling standing near is his son, Edward Wells. And they're both English, so don't remind them that this vessel was taken from the British in the last war. Of course not, unless they say something mean or exasperating about Washington or America. In that case, I give you leave to twit him as hard as you like. Who was that nice-looking man that helped us on board? I thought father or somebody called him Captain. So he is, Captain Jones, but acting as first mate here. That lady talking to mother and Aunt Wealthy is his wife. They're both Yankees, so you can relieve your mind occasionally on the subject of the ship. By a little private exaltation with them. Do you notice the contrast between those two faces? Mother's and Mrs. Jones. Her mother's so beautiful, fair and rosy. Who could help noticing it, Rupert? I do think our mother has just the loveliest face in the world. Ditto, he said, gazing at her with a world of filial love, pride, and chivalric admiration in his handsome eyes. I say, what's the use? You may just as well sit still where you hair, growled a voice near at hand. The young people turned involuntarily at the sound and perceived that the speaker was a burly, red-faced young Englishman, the one so politely and kindly addressed a little meek-eyed woman of the same nationality with a chalky complexion and washed-out appearance generally, who, as they afterward learned, and suspected at the time, was the wife of his bosom. "'What a bear!' exclaimed Rupert in an aside to his sister, and drawing her away as he spoke. "'See, we're beginning to move. Let's go over to the other side, where we can have a better view.' "'I presume that's what she wanted to do,' remarked Mildred, glancing back at the meek-eyed woman. "'And why shouldn't he have let her?' "'Why, indeed!' Thank you for listening to another episode of Acresoft Story Classic.